Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Scholarly Communications channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Irene Hilden, author of Absent Presences in the Colonial Archive. This book was published in October 2022 by Leuven University Press, and I want to note that it is available open access. Absent Presences in the Colonial Archive is an exploration of colonial past through objects of sound, based in archival work at the Berlin Sound Archive, or Lautarchive. With a firm commitment to post-colonial scholarship, this book offers a historical ethnography of a metropolitan institution that participated in the production and preservation of colonial structures of power and knowledge. The book examines sound objects and listening practices that render the coloniality of knowledge fragile and inconsistent, revealing the absent presences of colonial subjects who are given little or no place in established national narratives and collective memories. Irene Hilden is research manager at the Center for Anthropological Research on Museums and Heritage in Berlin. Welcome to New Books Network, Irene. Thank you for having me. Um, So to start with, I would love if you could share a few words about yourself, where you were born, where you went to school, and how you became interested in anthropology, archival studies, and archives. Yeah, so I was born in a Western in Western Germany in a small town that is known for its university and many students, but which can also be characterized as rather rural and conservative. And yeah, even though my parents and even my school were kind of liberal, at least compared to the rest, uh, it was my goal to leave after graduating from high school. And I really wanted to to move to the capital to Berlin. So I applied for different study programs and one of them was called European Ethnology, which I guess you would refer to as cultural anthropology in the the US. And I remember that, yeah, the description of the undergraduate program sounded interesting to me. It was about society and social issues, about cultural expression, material and media culture. However, at the time, I didn't have a clear idea of what exactly anthropology was as a subject or as a field of research. And yeah, but but not only did I have the privilege to to get into the humanities, I was also lucky enough that the seminars I attended and the professors I met excited and inspired me right from the start. Um, But it still took me years to find out what my particular research interests were and yeah, to find out that I wanted to do my own research on Germany's colonial past and its legacies. 
Well, that's a great segue to talking about this book. Um, you begin the introduction to absent presences in the colonial archive with real vulnerability about a project you worked on related to historical sound recordings and colonial knowledge production. As a reader, I was so grateful for your honesty and your transparency from the first page about what, what it felt like to work on this project. Could you share with listeners of the podcast what prompted you to write the book and what your main goals were for the book? Yeah, so I start the book by mentioning an exhibition project about the past and present of German colonialism that opened in Berlin in 2016. And this exhibition was a major event for an in Germany to address its colonial history in a major public museum to, to reach a broader public and yeah, to basically put the topic on the mainstream agenda. Um, because before the discussion of this part of German history took place mainly in academic, activist and diasporic circles. But um, although the exhibition was an important step, it was also criticized by many for not being critical enough and especially for not including more black and activist voices in its early conception phase. So at the time, I was commissioned to do some research for the exhibition, and I felt very ambivalent in my role because, on the one hand, I supported the critique of the institution and the curators, but on the other hand, I also thought it was important to contribute to this mainstream project. And yeah, this ambivalence would then also accompany me during the research and writing of the book. What does it mean to research uh, to do research on colonial history and colonial subjects as a white scholar? Do I have the right to do this? To what extent do I perpetuate a system of exclusion and post-colonial injustice? And yeah, but I mean, for all my doubts, I'm, I'm nevertheless glad that I endeavored to do the research, to write the book and to engage with not only the history of German colonialism, but also the history of the city of Berlin, the university, and at least my own academic discipline, that of cultural anthropology. So yeah, this is what kind of prompted me to write this book, to, to come back to your question, uh, to, to add my perspectives to these different historical layers that I just mentioned. Fantastic. Uh, and so... Just to orient us, your research for this book focuses on a number of collections in one specific archive. Could you tell us a little more about that archive and the collections you focused on for the case studies in the book? Yeah, the collections and sound recordings I focus on in the book derive from the sound archive of Humboldt University in Berlin, known as the so-called Laut Archive or Laut Archive. And the archive's core consists of an extensive collection of Shellac records entailing stories and songs, personal testimonies and poems, glossaries and numbers, all recorded in the first half of the 20th century. And in my research, I focus on sound recordings generated under colonial conditions, conceptualizing the sound archive as a colonial archive at home, as I call it, produced and preserved in the colonial metropolis of Berlin. And I argue that by looking at colonial sound collections, we can shed light onto the practices, production and preservation of colonial structures of power and knowledge, which, as we all know, have 
in part survive to the present day. Now, the book is particularly concerned with a period in which the medium of the Shellac record was formative for the sound archive. Uh, roughly divided into three institutional phases, these stages ultimately also determined the selection of the three case studies in the book. My case analysis proceed from three colonial situations in or near the metropolis of Berlin, from three globally entangled histories that manifest themselves in sound, materialize in historical sound objects, and, yeah, you know, each stand for different colonial collections of the archive. And also the case studies involve different social spheres, that is military, public, and academic, but they also overlap at times. And yeah, I'm sure we will talk about about this more later. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah. I, I, will, I will now speak a little bit about the institutional history, if you allow me. Super. Yeah, <laughs> okay. great. So the first institutional phase relevant to the book is characterized by recording activities of the so-called Royal Prussian Phonographic Commission. And this was founded in late 1915 um, and set up to compile sound recordings of prisoners of war in German internment camps during World War I. And this set of recordings generated during the war is now one of the oldest and most extensive archival collections of the sound archive. At the time, a range of well-established professors in English, Romans, and Slavistic linguistics, African and Oriental studies, musicology, and anthropology all headed off to a considerable number of German POW camps throughout the German Empire, and their mission was to compile sound recordings for linguistic and phonetic, musicological, and anthropological purposes. Among the soldiers and civilian internees were several people from the colonies, most of whom had either been fighting for the British and French armies on the Western Front or yeah, had remained on German soil and waters at the beginning or during the war. And for some of the commission members, um, it was of particular interest um, to record voices of non-white people because for them, it meant that they did not have to travel to the non-European field or colonial territories in order to explore what they would consider, quote-unquote, their research objects. And, yeah, I mean, for some of the scholars, this had been a common but always costly and time-consuming practice, but now they could benefit from the state of war and the fact that numerous colonial soldiers and civilian attorneys had become prisoners of war in Germany where they would remain for what was for them an indefinite period. And the book's first case study revolves around a couple of sound recordings of two Indian prisoners of war named Baldeo Singh and Karamad Ali. And yeah, I'm sure I will say more about them later. Now, after the war, the Phonographic Commission was dissolved and the collection of Shellac records became part of the state uh, the Prussian State Library's newly founded sound department. And while the so-called war recordings formed the basis of the department's stock, one of its new aims was to systematically compile a collection of German dialects. And yeah, the making of recordings of non-German 
languages lost importance, but still occurred from time to time, and recordings of non-Europeans then spending time in post-imperial Berlin were made for a variety of reasons, for example, non-white diplomats or researchers or non-white artists were recorded. And my second case study deals with two sound recordings of the female performers Venkatama and Rajamanikam from India. And these two sound recordings did not originate at the sound department, but at a so-called India show that took place at the Berlin Zoological Garden in September 1926. And yeah, the zoo, as, as well as many other urban places of amusement, represented during that time sites where colonial fantasies were fueled and where they resumed after the formal end of German colonialism in 1918. Now, the next and last institutional phase sets in when the sound collections were again transferred, this time to the Friedrich Wilhelm University, in Berlin, which is today's Humboldt University. And here, archival holdings were assigned to the Institute for Sound Research, newly founded in 1934. The Africanist Dietrich Westermann became head of the department and divided the Institute into three research areas, focusing on linguistics, phonetics, and music. And during Westermann's time, recordings were made of so-called African language assistants, teaching Swahili and ever among other languages at Berlin University. And among these, or among those who attended the classes were people who sought to qualify for future colonial service, meaning for the moment when Germany would reclaim colonial territories. And one recording of the language assistant by Yuma Mohammed Hussein dates from this period lending his voice, Hussein was recorded for the purpose of teaching and learning Swahili. And yeah, so this is, um, this is part of my last case study, the joint engagement with his recording together with Swahili speakers from present day Berlin. And um, yeah, I stop here. <laughs> Fantastic. That's such a clear outline of the institution and how these case studies represent different, um, as you say, phases in, in the life of the institution. Thank you so much. Um, so moving over to the second chapter of the book titled The Ethnographic, you uh, pause uh to interrogate what it means to study the Laut archive through the lens of historical anthropology, and you reflect on the legacies that weighed down current European ethnology. Could you share some of the considerations that shaped your methodological approach to this research's ethnography and how you extend that with the process of past presencing and multidirectional temporal practice? Uh, yeah. So under the heading of the ethnographic, as you said, the second chapter revolves around the question of what it means to approach the sound archive reflexively and under the premise of the project of historical anthropology. Hence, in this first part of the book, I set out to explore conceptual considerations and methodological instruments that appeared useful for doing a historical ethnography of the Laut Archive. Now, 
what historical ethnography offers is the possibility to focus on the analysis of subjects, practices, and events of the past from the perspective of the present. So here I endorse the conceptual idea of a historical ethnography as aiming at correlating past and present beyond clearly separated temporal modes, and I suggest a multi-temporal or multi-directional practice that allows an investigation of the relationships between past and present. So on the one hand, this meant to examine how the past is experienced, understood and produced in the present, a practice that social anthropologist Sharon MacDonald, who I began working with after this project conceptualized as past presencing, and on the other hand, I suggest to go beyond the presentist perspectives by also interrogating imminent logics in the past and in the archive. So questions that were important to me were, for example, how does the past materialize? How is history documented, encoded, archived, and thus continuously selected? And what are the mechanisms ensuring that certain material and stories survive over time and are regarded as evidence of the past, while others do not count as such or get lost? So ultimately, what characterizes my approach is a methodology of mobility and juxtaposition. By this, I mean both the productive comparison of different perspectives and temporalities, as well as their relational juxtaposition. And this then involves, for instance, the approach of reading the sound archive both along and against its grain or of examining different modes of listening, of listening then and listening now. And yeah, I'm sure we will go into more detail about the notion of the archive and practices of listening, both of which are relevant for the entire book. Super, thank you. So then in chapter three, you move into talking about your first of the three case studies. You've titled it Failed Listening. I thought that was such a, a provocative um, title. Uh, you explained that in this instance, your research led you to discover more about your own position and your role in the research, what it means to conduct historical research concerning a temporal, geographic, and cultural frame that you're not entirely familiar with. And at the same time, you propose seeing failure as an opportunity to ask new questions. You wrote that the fact that one might fail is important for a feminist practice invested in decolonizing anthropology. Could you share more about the case study, about what you learned, and what you propose we understand about failure in the archive? Yeah, the first case study on faith listening follows, in a way, my reflections on the heterogeneous field of historical anthropology that I elaborated on in the previous chapter, and it takes ethnographic episodes from my, if you will, field research as starting points. And those episodes do not stem from my research in the Sound Archive in Berlin, but occurred during a research stay at the University of Delhi in India. So here, short extracts from my interview transcripts and field notes set the ground for my approach to sound recordings of Indian prisoners of war, as I mentioned at the beginning. And 
yeah, my ethnographic material includes conversations with Indian scholars and observations, and the extracts presented in the chapter concern sound recordings of the Indian prisoners of war by Deo Singh and Karamat Ali, and my failed wish to get closer to these historical figures. Because of this failed wish, um, because I did not find out much about the historical figures for a variety of reasons, I intended to explore whether and how the notion of failure can nevertheless be productive in ethnographic work. And I suggest then the mode of a faith listening as one way of dealing with the sound archives, colonial legacies. So what I try to do here is to acknowledge the difficulties of coming to terms with the past, which you know will always leave a sense of dissatisfaction behind and I ponder over the different listening positions that are at stake here, the positions of the recordists and internees in the past, my own position today, and the position, positions of my, my Indian interlocutors. And what I came to understand is that the positions are both separated from each other in temporal, spatial, and epistemological terms, but they are also interconnected in unique ways. Because my positionality as a white and, and female anthropologist belonging to the very same university as the researchers that first recorded the voices of prisoners of war indicates a certain continuity. I ask how to both reveal this fact and at the same time break with it. Now, by proceeding from Kamala Visvesvaran's proposition of a feminist ethnography as failure, which you know, she wrote about in the early 1990s, my attempt was to introduce an intersectional position towards the sound archive. I argue that the politics of listening are closely connected to the politics of location, as described, for example, by Adrian Rich or Rosa Bridotti. Uh, so I try to make the point that it matters from where, where you think, speak, write, and listen. It matters who's recording and who's being recorded, who's speaking, who or what is heard at what moment in time, and who's listening or who's listening in. Well, yeah, the conceptual core of the discussion um, here seeks to negotiate the limitations and constraints of my research endeavor and positionality. Um, but the chapter also tries to deal with the colonial dimensions of World War I and the marginalization of non-European perspectives within its history and memory. Pointing to the existing but sometimes rather complex imbalance of the availability of ostensibly subaltern and some and dominant sources, I tried to develop a critical stance towards the colonial archive. Dealing with the colonial archive entails acknowledging the inability to know everything, accounting for the, for the archive's limited and incomplete condition. Um, and yeah, dealing with the colonial archive is not merely about stories of the past, but also about the history of the present and how it is interrupted by the past. And this is something I take from Sadia Hartman. 
And yeah, lastly, and, and inspired by perspectives in queer studies, I, I try to introduce the notion of failure as a form of critique. So going back to Jack Halberstam, among others, I try to critique the normative standards of historical narratives and source analysis that not only tend to ignore silences and their active production, but also the diversity of archival traces. Thank you. Yeah. And then, I mean, as we move on into the next chapter of the book, I think you dive even, even more into some of that theory. Uh, chapter four, the archive weaves this path through archival theory to dive into the tension of the archive as literal and metaphorical space and uh, to carve out a conceptual understanding of the colonial archive and how to interact with it. So here you're engaging with theorists of the archive, ranging from Foucault and Derrida to Stoller and Hartman. You start the chapter by explaining that ultimately you hope to elucidate your own position in the struggle over archives. Can you share with listeners how you arrived at your conclusions about archival practice and your engagement, which you've you've already referred to about the, the queer critiques of the archive, uh, and then the realizations you come to specifically about acoustic archives? So yeah, as you, as you said, chapter four is dedicated to the archive and the archival as, and is preceded by a discussion of genealogies of archival theories that were important for my thinking in, in general. So my reflections, as you said, begin with classic accounts by Michel Foucault and Alain Farge, as well as Jacques Derrida and Carolyn Steedman, but then they end with contributions by Anne Stoller, Sadia Hartman, and Anjalia Rondeka, among others. And while Derrida famously went back to the Greek archons, the guardians of parchment and law, for me, of course, the recourse to the archival technology of sound reproduction was also important in this chapter. So on the basis of my, my theoretical reflections on the archive, on knowledge and power in, in a Foucauldian sense, really, I seek to discuss how the, how the sound archive can be grasped in its discursive order and its hegemonic logic. And here, considerations of the imperial, the colonial, and the European archive help me to conceptualize the Laut Archive as a colonial archive at home, which I've already mentioned at the beginning and which I borrow from historical and visual anthropologist Elizabeth Edwards. But the chapter also tries to address the power dynamics between the making of archives and the production of history that um, anthropologist Michel Rovtriot has famously written about. Drawing on the archival turn, I plead for an understanding of the archive as to put it in the words of Kate Eichhorn, simultaneously a subject of inquiry, a site of research, and as a critical practice. And this is probably also what then defines my struggle over archives that you mentioned in your question, that I tried to tackle the archive both as a concept and metaphor, but also as a physical space and research site. Now, what follows for me from that, and this 
goes again back to scholars like Hartman and Halberstam is to advocate for a conception of the archive not as a place where the past can be reconstructed or recovered, but rather as a conceptual approach to an investigation of the legacies and the epistemic forms and formations of the past that influence our present and future. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, and so then um, after exploring that, you move to a second case study in chapter five, close listening. You ask important questions about gender that point to the ways scholarship of colonialism generally focuses on visual rather than audio archives. Can you share with listeners about the case study you present here and how you use it to think more deeply about absence, presence, and gender in the archive? And how did close listening give you a new understanding of recorded subjects? What did that process of close listening look like? Yeah, in my second case study, I tried to examine not only the gendered, but also the racialized order of the sound archive. And as as mentioned at the beginning, the focus of this case analysis is on two sound recordings by the female performers Venkatama and Rajamani Khan from India, recorded at a site of a so-called focus show human zoo in the Berlin Zoological Garden in 1926. And as, as the majority of the Sound Archive's recordings are of men, the femininity, if you will, of these sources represent a unique feature. And I argue that by concentrating on female colonial subjects, it is possible to defy much of the scholarship on historical migrations and transnational mobility since for a long time a large part of the literature focused on male and on physical labor. And although the Sound Archive is another good example of the paucity of sources attesting to female presence and historicity, this case study still allows me to, to highlight Indian temporary workers and their artistic background. The analysis suggests another mode of listening, that of a close listening, and this I refer back to Annette Hoffmann and Britta Lange, who first introduced this method, assuming that historical sound recordings contain more than verbally communicated content, namely nonverbal information. So for this approach, it is important to recognize that in addition to the noise of the technical apparatus, the recordings can contain pauses and silences, unplanned speaking and misspeaking, coughing or laughing. And I argue that a close listening offers the possibility of perceiving interruptions, if, if not disruptions, if you will, of the otherwise very strict and rigid recording process. I put forward the argument that a close listening allows for paying attention to aspects that appear imperceptible or inaudible within the archival or media order that underlies the production of the recording. I demonstrate that these aspects are nevertheless part of the archive and become visible and audible by means of a close reading or better close listening. So in my investigation of the archival traces of the two performers, which I tried to locate on the level of technology and materiality, 
of the recording device and discourse networks as well as of the subject, I show that the logic of the scientific recording procedure of the time followed a patriarchal norm and a gendered order of knowledge. So here I discuss whether Venkatama's laughter and Rajamanikam's free narration can be understood as disruptions of the procedure and thus to a certain extent as subversions of the archival and hegemonic order. And further, I contemplate to what extent this touches up on moments of agency of the recorded subjects who had otherwise been you know, degraded as objects, two objects. Are they marginalized by and within the patriarchal system exploited by the colonial labor regime? Are they cosmopolitan workers from below, subversive in their artistic practice and speaking position? Or is neither the case? And do the archival traces of the two women point instead to the ambiguities of colonial dialectics? Yeah, so these are some of the questions that I try to grapple with this, in this part of the book. I love that idea of like using close listening to look for agency. I think that's really powerful. Um, and then moving into the following chapter titled Collective Listening, you ask really important questions about sensitive collections and you describe methodological decisions you made in order to deal with specific recordings in sensitive and collaborative ways. Could you share with listeners the factors you considered in understanding specific materials as sensitive and the ways you hope your work can reframe what we understand as sensitive collections and the ways that this understanding impacted your methodology. Yeah, in my third and final case study, I developed the mode of a collective listening, as you said, in order to investigate the historical and current meanings of a sound recording by Bayuma Mohammed Hussein, whom I also mentioned at the beginning. Hussein is a very prominent figure in the historical reappraisal of colonial migration to Berlin. Compared to the other protagonists in the book, there is quite a lot of knowledge about his life. And yeah, hardly any other biography seems so closely entangled with German colonial history. Hussein was born in Dar es Salaam in 1904 and fought as a child soldier in World War I in the then colony of German East Africa. At the end of the 1920s, he came to Berlin, where he worked as a waiter and actor, but also as a Swahili language assistant at the Berlin University. Denounced for quote-unquote racial defilement by the Nazis in 1941, he died in the Sachsenhausen concentration camp in 1944. Hussein's voice recording was produced at the Institute for Sound Research in July 1934, and the sound recordings features a text read out by him in Swahili dealing with Swahili wedding tradition and traditions and the recording was primarily intended for language teaching purposes. Now in order to approach the specific sonic source I organized a listening workshop together with the anthropologist Yasmin Mahadzi and we invited Swahili speakers to share their views on the conditions under which the recording 
was produced about the content and its meaning. And our goal was to, to bring together different expertise, perspectives and positionalities in order to allow for a more collective, collaborative and open-ended investigation of the historical material. So here I explore whether collective listening presents a way to overcome traditional forms of academic knowledge production by recognizing a variety of knowledges and experiences. And what the workshop revealed is that the research and recording practice at the time was accompanied by several culturally and gender-specific border crossings. Today's listening experiences showed how fundamentally necessary it is to classify historical voice recordings as a result of unequal power relations and the product of research and teaching methods of a colonial knowledge system. So any present or future engagement with Hussein's recording must take into account the doubly, as I call it, sensitive, doubly sensitive character of the recording. The recording is sensitive because of its conditions of origin in an apparatus of colonial knowledge production, but not only the recording situation, also the content of the recording is sensitive um, because the recorded and published text stand for an othering and for the gendered colonial gaze. Now, with this perspective of collective listening, my third case study moves between three at times contradictory premises. For one thing, I ask whether the approach taken here simply complements the colonial archive and thus in a way updates it. I ask whether it allows for the establishment of an alternative or second life for the colonial archive or whether it creates an entirely new archive consisting of contemporary and intersubjective projections and speculations. Great, thank you. I really appreciate the model that you've shared for collective listening because I think it's such a powerful model for other institutions, collecting institutions to, as you say, recognize alternative modes of knowledge um, and, and to bring community together around our collections. Um, so then moving on, chapter seven, the acoustic, you expand on the conceptual structure that you've built with ethnography, archives, and historical anthropology by bringing in sound studies and media history. How do you see an understanding of sound and listening as modifying the way we think about and study the Laut archive? And what kinds of other factors impact the way sound scholars approach their work? Yeah, by, by taking into account perspectives from the field of sound studies, my final chapter tackles the notion of the acoustic and the sonic. Um, and it further interrogates the relationship between sound preservation and the paradigm of salvage anthropology and hence relations between race and sound. So what I try to show is that the so-called salvage paradigm was emblematic of the archival project of the sound archive. It was the attempt to preserve not only the voices of the deceased, but the sound of so-called native culture. 
And yeah, as I try to point out, this notion really runs like a red thread throughout the, the, the book. And yeah, in, in the chapter, I introduce a variety of approaches to the object of sound, and I take up the proclamation to break with static and naturalized conceptions of sound. Such critical voices wish to understand sound events as highly dynamic and multisensory phenomena. For instance, musicologist Nina von Altsheim postulates the necessity to reject a static and essentialist figure of sound, as she calls it, and instead she seeks to conceptualize sound as a composite of visual, structural, and discursive information. Altsheim advocates for a shift away from the source of sound and ostensibly given qualities of mediated sound. And instead, one should concentrate on the processes of hearing and listening, including not only acoustic, but also tactile, spatial, and physical sensations. And yeah, what follows from this is that the focus is no longer on the sound object or subject alone, but on reflecting and historicizing listening practices. And this then also reflects the purpose of developing three diverging listening modes in the preceding case studies. And uh, yeah, what the book ultimately tries to suggest is that in dealing with sound objects of the sound archive, one ought to detach oneself from both the archival objects themselves, as well as from the recorded historical subjects, and instead focus more on practices of listening, of listening then and listening now, as, as I've also emphasized at the beginning. Thank you. Uh, so then moving on to the, the final chapter, you reflect on what's possible for the future of the Laut archive. And you propose some potential scenarios that account for inequality, violence, and the global entanglements that are often forgotten when discussing the complexity of the archive. Could you share the projects you describe here and the ways you see them setting an example of how the Laut archive could position itself as a counter archive and a living archive? And how should the lessons we learn from the Laut archive shape how we think about archives and records collecting in future projects. All right. So, yeah, on the last 10 pages of the book, I discuss three contemporary archival projects that are quite different from each other and that I try to relate to the past archival project of the Laut Archiv and, yeah, to the notion of, of a migrant archive as coined by Stuart Hall and Arjuna Padurai. So the first two projects seek to document heterogeneous histories aiming to replace narratives that fail to account for global entanglements and migratory movements, inequalities, and epistemic violence. On the one hand, I discussed the oral history project Archive of Refuge, which was launched last year at a large cultural center in Berlin in collaboration with a number of intellectuals, scholars, and activists. And while one of the aims of my study was to show that sources from the Lauterchief bear witness to global entanglements before the second half of the 20th century, Archive of Refuge sought to 
assemble memories of migration as part of Germany's post-war history. So the outcome of the project is a digital commemorative site featuring 41 multilingual video interviews lasting several hours with people who immigrated to East and West Germany between 1945 and 2016. And yeah, what the project aims for is to provide a novel tool that is an online archive to narrate German history, a history that is intrinsically connected to migration. Now, linking the two archival projects, the Lauterheave and Archive of Refuge, is of course a balancing act. While you know the first project was intended to attest to the narrative of Germany as a nation of technological and scientific progress, the latter seeks to show that migratory movement, movements are an integral part of German society and history. And while one project was conceived to form a science-based repository proving cultural and racial difference, the other wishes to create a pool of resources to be used in political education and critical migration research. And yeah, what I suggest is that, in my opinion, the Lauterchief can be seen both as a counter-archive and a reference point for projects such as Archive of Refuge. And on the other hand, and you know, as for the second archival project, I elaborate on archives compiled by the NGO Domit, the Documentation Center and Museum of Migration in Germany. While Archive of Refuge is a state-funded project, Demet is more of a grassroots project. Founded 30 years ago by a small group of migrants from Turkey, the archive's task is to collect and preserve testimonials bearing witness to the diverse histories of migration in Germany. And I think that both creating new and open-ended digital and living archives and going back to a hegemonic archival project from the past can contribute to the attempt to challenge grand national narratives, raise awareness of colonial continuities, and seek as well as build new solidarities and collective memories. Now, the third archival project is to is related to the political now. Here I discuss a specific development in current European asylum politics, which concerns Germany and its federal office for migration and refugees using speech analysis technology to compile voice samples of asylum seekers to determine their countries of origin and hence their asylum status in Germany. In this process of building a voice archive, albeit one with different political intentions, I I try to draw an analogy between the Laut Archiv and the present day practice of producing speech samples for the purpose of providing alleged evidence, evidence that allegedly proves racial and cultural difference or a presumed stable resemblance between spoken language and geopolitical borders. So I end the book by posing the question what researchers will be doing in a hundred years time when they look back at the, at the archives of the German Federal Office for Migration and Refugees and at the tens of thousands of speech sa samples 
compiled by another state institution, how will they tackle the difficult task of dealing with the acoustic legacies of the European border regime? And this, of course, yeah, remains an open and for me very alarming question. Absolutely, yeah. Um, what does the future hold? Um, well, this, thank you so much for sharing about this book. This is really inspiring and um, thought-provoking. And so before we wrap up our conversation today, I would love to hear what new projects you're working on, maybe projects that come out of this book and the questions you ask or completely new projects. Yes, well, for the past two years, I've been working uh, in a postdoctoral project at the Center for Anthropological Research on Museums and Heritage at Humboldt University that you also mentioned at the beginning. And here I was kind of able to, to continue my research in the field of critical museum and heritage studies. So what, what we did was ethnographic audience research in a newly opened cultural space in Berlin that was and is highly contested because it houses and exhibits art and artifacts collections from colonial contexts. Either, you know, objects were accumulated and acquired in former colonies, or we know next to nothing about their acquisition and circulation. And yeah, by conducting observations and many, many interviews and surveys, we try to investigate and understand how audiences understand and respond to these contentious colonial histories and their representation in exhibitions and in a public institution. So while I'm not doing archival research, at least for now, I'm still engaged with Germany's tangible and intangible colonial past and post-colonial present. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, thank you for taking time to share with me today. And once again, my guest is Irene Hilden, author of Absent Presences in the Colonial Archive from Leuven University Press. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you have been listening to the Scholarly Communications Channel of New Books Network.